This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. It can be found on page 983 in your pew Bible. Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I am one of the pastors here. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Let me, let me begin this morning uh, by reading a quote about Jesus from the great pastor and reformer, John Calvin. Quote, we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity, in his conception. If gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth, he was made like us in all respects that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. In satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance among, uh, in, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Would you all bow your heads with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, would you, would you capture us? Spirit of God, would you manifest your presence in this room by, by magnifying Christ in our hearts and lives? Spirit of God, would you manifest your presence in this room by taking our faces and helping us stare at all the glorious excellencies offered to us in Christ? Would you humble us this morning? Would you carve space out in our hearts to receive your word this morning? Will we listen to you? Will we listen to you? Will we listen to your word? Would you change us and transform us from the inside out? Would you set our faces and our lives in the direction of maturity and completion and growth in the Christian life? 
Would you convict us of sin? Would you convict us of pride? Would you give us the ability to be humble people, eager to be changed and transformed, eager to be corrected and directed and instructed, eager to see more of your glory, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, the, the, the preeminence of Jesus Christ throughout the book of Colossians has top billing. Every exhortation and every teaching point from Paul is oriented around and through and for the preeminence of Christ. That's why we spent two weeks on verses 15 through 20. The preeminence of Christ won't be left behind is an introductory point. It's more like a granite foundation that every other point of this book is built on top of. If you read the Bible with an attitude towards your own glory, through and for your own preeminence, then you will hate the Bible. If you read Colossians with yourself at the center, you'll resent it. If you believe that the Christian life is all about your own personal well-being as the goal, you're going to be gravely disappointed. And that disappointment will fester into resentment and bitterness. But if Christ remains at the center, he'll hold the orbit of everything else in your world together, both internal and external. If you put something else or someone else at the center of your life, the kind of G-forces of suffering and grief and sin will shred your life to pieces. It'll shred you to pieces. Only Christ can hold your heart and hold your world together. No other foundation is sturdy enough, and nothing in life was created to do that for you. Only the uncreated, pre-existent Christ can fulfill that role in your life can be your foundation, can be your anchor, can be your point of reference for everything else in reality. Today's text contains a number of profound realities, profound statements by the Apostle Paul. Each of them warrant many sermons on their own, but we're going to walk through each movement of the text and attempt to plumb just a little bit of the riches that are therein contained. The four movements that will frame my message today are one, Rejoicing in suffering. What does that mean? How do we do that? Should we even try? What should we try to grasp or comprehend or see from this statement from Paul? Number two, there's a hidden mystery revealed. Revealed. What's Paul mean by mystery and what does he not mean? Right? And why is it such a big deal? Number three, Paul's stated goal for these people is maturity in Christ. The New King James says perfection or perfect, complete. What does that mean and how should we think about it today? And number four, we see an explanation that helps us understand the nature of effort in the Christian life. And we'll spend time talking about that. So number one, rejoicing in suffering. Verse 24 says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed, but now revealed to his saints. Let's tackle three questions or concerns that scholars have, have had around this first section. The first one is, what's going on here? Is that even real? Can you really rejoice in your suffering? Can somebody rejoice in their suffering and do it in a way that's spiritually rich or something deeper than a runner's high? Or something deeper than the pleasure that people get from punishing themselves in Iron Man contests? What's going on here? That's the essence of the first question I'm going to ask. The second one is what's lacking? What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? What is Paul filling up? And number three, in what way does he do the first two things for the church? For the church, for the body of Christ. Number one, what's happening to answer this, let's look at some parallel verses. I'm going to read from Romans 8, verse 17. Quote, 
The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. There's lots of similarities here. Provided that we suffer with him. Provided that we suffer with Christ. But Romans was written after Christ's ascension. He's at the right hand of the Father. So in what way do we suffer with Christ's suffering? We read in the book of Acts that Jesus appears to Paul and tells Paul that as Paul is persecuting the church, he's persecuting Jesus. There's a way that suffering The suffering of the church is associated with the suffering of Christ himself. And Paul participates in Christ's suffering, in his own suffering. But what I want to know is I want to know how does he rejoice during and in the midst of that kind of persecution and suffering? What does it take to rejoice in suffering? This isn't masochism. There isn't there, there, there's something more wonderful about the purpose of his suffering than the suffering itself is awful, right? Something more wonderful outweighs the awfulness of the suffering. There's something more glorious than the suffering is painful. There's something supremely valuable to Paul that's literally shrinking down the damaging or discouraging effect that suffering can have and does have on all of us at times. So I have to ask today, and we should be asking ourselves, what are we suffering for? Romans 5.3 says, and I'm paraphrasing, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That, that makes sense, right? Rejoicing in the hope of glory, that sounds like something natural to be rejoicing in. But then Paul says, not only the glory, but we also rejoice in the suffering. Why? Because of what we know what we know, knowing that our suffering produces something. It's doing something. In, our, in, in the text in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance. It produces endurance and character and unashamed hope. And the link is clear. The purpose of your suffering changes the relationship that you have with that suffering. So I have to ask, what are you suffering for? Four, why are you experiencing suffering? Peter commands us in 1 Peter, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Don't suffer for doing evil, but suffer for doing good because that's how Christ suffered. That's the kind of suffering that aligns us with Christ, not only in his own purposes, but even in the Father's methods. Suffering for the gospel, suffering for your family, suffering for faithfulness to Christ, suffering for edification of Christ's body, helping others move down the path of completion or maturity, endurance that's saturated with that kind of purpose and meaning meaning can dwarf or reorient or give perspective for our suffering. But if you're suffering for evil, if you're suffering for evil, I'd ask you to repent and turn. Stop bearing the weight of foolishness or folly. If you're suffering the pain and burden of hypocrisy or the pain and burden of pharisaical religion, then repent and stop suffering for that reason. This is one reason, that so, one reason that so many Christians are miserable. Suffering during sin obstructs joy. Suffering during sin, if you're suffering because you're clutching onto or wrapping your arms around it, holding on to your sin, sinful attitudes or sinful lusts or sinful decisions, then you won't know this kind of joy. But suffering for the sake of glorification or the glorification and edification of other people or the the suffering that, that can coexist with joy is suffering for the gospel. Suffering for faithfulness and obedience to Jesus 
that can exist with powerful, deep joy being connected to it. Paul also says, Paul says, now, now I rejoice in my suffering. That now isn't temporal. It doesn't mean in this moment I rejoice in my suffering. It's a logical, it's a logical now. It's about the development of his argument or the development of his thought and less about a specific timing in reality. This is why Paul says, I can rejoice in my suffering as a minister of the gospel. My suffering is serving to accomplish something. It's serving to accomplish goals that have eternal consequences. And friends, you don't have to look far in your life to notice that you're already suffering for something. You're already suffering for some goal that you have in your life right now. We suffer for our own popularity on Instagram. We suffer for our money. We suffer for our stuff. And those things are going to burn. They don't last. We suffer for our lusts and our sin. Why not suffer for things that don't burn? like the word of God, like the gospel of God, like leading and serving your family or loving and correcting your children or orienting your whole budget around the kingdom of God. Suffer for that and then do it with rejoicing. Why would you rejoice during suffering? Why would you rejoice in the midst of pain or persecution or trial or struggle that we're experiencing even just the weight of obedience to Jesus and the unsophisticated, the unsophisticated answer, the simplest answer that I could even give you this morning is that it's worth it. It's worth it. What's going to happen, the glory that is going to be revealed is worth the pain that you're facing now to obey and listen to and live a life in accordance with the word of God. What's going to happen is worth it. What's God, what God's doing in your life, even now in the midst of it, is worth it. What he's doing in other people's lives is worth it. Mother's Day was just a few weeks ago and it makes me want to say, moms, moms, it's worth it. The struggle is worth it. What God's doing is worth it. And that's why Paul is rejoicing. There isn't some magical special explanation that takes away the pain, but there is a true explanation that puts pain in its place and makes pain worth it. He's worth it. So that's why he rejoices in his suffering. That's why you can rejoice in your suffering. And the second question is, how is this suffering filling up something that's lacking in Christ's afflictions? And different camps exist with different ideas theologically about what's meant here. But most of the scholars I read were able to agree on at least two things. One, there's nothing lacking in Christ's atoning work. And number two, all Christians suffer a suffering that's patterned after Christ's suffering. First, what's lacking? And the short answer is nothing, nothing. In another way, there, if, if, if you think about it in another way, there is more suffering that Christians experience that spreads the kingdom of God, that glorifies Christ, that shows that Christ is our highest, most supreme value, but there's nothing left for Christ to accomplish than what he already accomplished by suffering on the cross. Christ became our wrath bearer and he suffered betrayal, he suffered torture, he suffered beatings, and he suffered crucifixion and nothing else is needed. You can't pay penance. You can't buy indulgences to stay out of hell. You can't flog yourself or punish yourself to make yourself right with God. If you feel guilty for sin, you can't abuse yourself enough to make that guilt go away. So stop trying. You can't suffer enough to earn forgiveness for sins. Hating yourself won't take away the weight of sin. That's actually your accuser speaking. And committing violence against yourself won't relieve your guilt. There's one person's suffering that can do that for you. And that was Jesus Christ, the God-man. 
He suffers the wrath of the Father against sin, and then he offers us his perfect righteousness. There's nothing missing or lacking in the atoning work of Christ. In fact, what's, uh, filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, in this text, that word afflictions is not used anywhere in the New Testament when it's associated with Christ's atoning work. This is a different concept than what's going on there. First Peter 2.21 says, what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? That's suffering for the wrong reasons. But If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. We've been called for that kind of suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ suffered without doing anything wrong ever. Christ suffered without sinning. He suffered for doing good, And the suffering that Paul's describing here in our text is Christ-like suffering, which is why he can go so far as to say, I rejoice in this kind of suffering because it's like my Savior's suffering. And it's accomplishing similar ends as Christ. Elsewhere, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That begs the question, who do you want to be lumped in with? Who do you want to be associated with? Who do you want to be known to be with? Think of the story of Christ's crucifixion and, the, and, and Peter on the night that Christ was crucified. Peter's standing there and a teenage girl recognizes him and he says, and, and she says, you're an associate of Jesus. You're with them. You're with the disciples. I recognize you. I recognize your accent. You're one of his followers. And Peter denies Jesus and cusses her out to leave him alone or cusses at her to, uh, to leave him alone and he swears. What's wrong? What's wrong with us What's wrong with us that we're so easily ashamed at being associated with Jesus? But Jesus said if we're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of us. Paul suffers in this unique apostolic way in the first century, but every Christian will suffer the temptation that we'll be faced with to shrink away and to cower away from being associated with Christ. We'll all experience the temptation of being, of being, um, of cowering away for the sake of not being shamed or maligned or even violently persecuted for Christ. And my prayer for us is that we'd be able to say with Paul, indeed, I count everything as loss except the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that's that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's consumed in our text today with building up this body of Christ, the church. He rejoices in suffering that he has to endure in order that Christ's body would be edified and strengthened and beautified and served. His aim was such that all other things could burn, could burn. Everything could be torn to pieces, including his own body. For the sake of the body, Christ's body, Suffering that can be endured with joy is suffering for the right reasons, not because of our own foolishness or our own selfishness, but suffering for the sake of faithfulness to Christ, suffering for the sake of Christ's body, suffering for the sake of Christ's bride, the church. Point number two. There's, there's a hidden mystery in our text that is revealed, referenced in our text that is now revealed, has been revealed. In this section of our text, I want to highlight two important realities. First, the mystery isn't a mystery any longer. And second, we tend to not experience the full force or weight of that reality. There have been church leaders in the, in the history of the church that emphasize the mystery of God and the mystery of his purposes. 
In fact, in places like Romans 11, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. <coughs> Excuse me. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. There is something massive and majestic and incomprehensible about God. There are depths to his knowledge and wisdom that are unknowable to us. And parenthetically, let me just say, if there are things that are hidden in the secret counsels of God, it, those are things that can't be good for us to know. He doesn't hold out on us with things that are good for us. But there are hidden things in God. There are mysteries in the sense that we can't fully grasp or fully understand or fully comprehend the godness of God. But this mystery, the one in our text this morning, isn't one of those things. The point of our text today is to emphasize the revelation. It's to emphasize the unveiling, not the hiddenness of the mystery. The point of our text today, it's, it's not hidden anymore. It's not hidden any longer. A mystery that was veiled, that was hidden for ages, isn't hidden anymore. We get to understand things that others live their entire lives dying to know. It's revealed. All that we need is revealed in Jesus Christ. There are mysteries that are hidden in the counsel of God's eternal will, but this mystery isn't one of those. Just like Romans 11 mentions, mentions the inscrutable wisdom and depth of God, Romans also says in Romans 16, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. The mystery is Christ in our text. And he's been revealed. He's been revealed to us. And that means that Christ is the mystery that was hidden for long ages, all the way up until his incarnation, all the way up until the revelation of Jesus when he came to earth and lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. So all that God has ever promised and all that God has ever planned, he's always been doing in Christ. The issue is not that we still need a mystery to be revealed. The issue is that we don't care about the truth that's already been disclosed to us. We live in an era of tips and tricks and life hacks, and we tend to think that if we just knew why, if we just knew why we sin the way that we do, that things would be better. We tend to think if we only understood all the reasons of our pain and all the reasons for our problems, then life would shift and change. We think that if we could just ask our heroes, hey, what's the secret sauce? I need help. Then our lives would be better. But the only mystery, the only secret that really matters for you for life and godliness has been opened up to you, has been disclosed to you. Friends, the curtain, right? The curtain has been pulled back for you to see and then it's been ripped in two to give you the Holy Spirit of God. What else do we need? And I get it. I get it. There are things to know. There are questions to be asked and answers to be given and there are things to learn. But because the secret that was hidden for ages has been revealed, because the revelation of Christ is now, you have the, the answer that you need even when you don't have the answers that you need. The fight for the Christian life isn't a fight to understand mysteries that are locked up and hidden. It's the fight to love the mystery that's already been solved in Christ. The fight of the Christian life isn't the fight to have all the answers. It's the fight to believe the person who calls himself the truth. The fight for the Christian life is the fight, isn't the fight for secrets to be uncovered, secrets of the universe to be understood. It's the fight to see your own unpremeditated impulses become transformed into Christ's. What you need isn't a secret. It's Jesus Christ. And because of this, him we proclaim. 
Him we proclaim. Verse 28 says it's Him we proclaim or it's Him that we preach. Not, not worldly philosophies, not 10 steps to improve your marriage, not sentimentality, not anything else but Jesus Christ, which brings me to my third point. Paul's goal for these people is maturity. Is maturity. Another word for this, this word maturity is perfect or complete in Christ. That's the goal, but what are the means? What's Paul's method in order to see maturity cultivated in these Christians? He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone, everyone, everyone. That's a lot of everyone's in a short span of words. And what I see in this text is Mark or others in this room, you, me, we, us. I think we're included in this. Warn us, teach us, instruct us inform and admonish us in order to present you and me mature in Christ. And that motivates me to ask the question, what do we come here to do? What do we come here to hear? What do we gather with other Christians to see happen? Do we come here on Sunday mornings, do we come to our brothers and sisters in Christ to hear warnings from God's word? Do we come to God's word to be warned or just warmed and comforted? Do we come to our brothers and sisters to hear a warning from the word of God or do we just want to be endorsed or agreed with from our brothers and sisters? Do we cultivate the kind of Christian relationships where we, where we expect to be taught by others Philippians 3 says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Think this way instead of another way. Think this way instead of a different way of thinking. Our thinking should be constantly being conformed more and more and more and more and more to the scriptures. In our text, the word for warning is the same root as admonish. And it has the connotation of your mind being in a state of disorder and then being brought back into proper order. It has the connotation of a broken bone being reset and aligned mentally. It has the connotation of a joint being popped back into place before your thinking. That's what warning and teaching and admonishing is for. We get our thoughts out of joint. And we need to proclaim Christ to each other again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And I think I can safely say with Paul that that goes for everyone, everyone, everyone here. So that means at least two things for us. And I want this to be freeing for you like it's freeing for me. The first one is that we shouldn't be surprised when we need to be corrected or warned or reordered. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Or when we need to, in real time, change the way we're thinking or how we've been thinking. And we don't have to be defensive, defensive when that happens because it's for everybody. It's for everybody. We should come to the word of God expecting that to happen. Paul's able to rejoice in his suffering for the sake of the maturity of these believers, to see them made complete in Christ. And if this is Paul's aim, then we should expect as Christians to discover places that we are not complete. We should expect to discover places in our own hearts and lives that we're still immature and then do the hard part, which is not be complacent about those discoveries. This is why at this church, we talk about sin and repentance a lot, a lot, because I want to see you all freed from it, because I long to see us grow up into Christ. This is why we plead, 
plead for power from the Holy Spirit for this body to move in the direction of completion, to move in the direction of more and more growth and maturity. Church is not an activity that you select from a catalog of options of what to do on a Sunday morning. The church is not one option among many social groups or communities that you could choose from. I watched, I watched a tragic documentary recently on the church, and the whole series ends with somebody kind of critiquing the modern church. And this person who, who uh, claims to be a Christian says, the church is people, and the church should be about people, and the church is community, and the church should be people caring about each other. But then, but then this person adds this little phrase and they say, but that honestly doesn't have to have anything to do with Jesus, God, or anybody else. And that part is completely untrue. That part is total nonsense. You can't have church without having Christ. Because the people that make up the church are Christ's body are the very bride of Christ. The church isn't generic sentimentality, and the church isn't generic community, and the church isn't a generic place for everyone to get a sense of belonging. The church is the mission of God on earth. And Paul's suffering and your suffering is for a reason. It's to serve your maturity. It's to serve your completeness. Suffering in the Christian life is fertilizer for your growth in Christ. And Paul knows it. And we would do well to know it a little deeper today. Spirit of God, do that in us. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid foods for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. My kids wouldn't know evil if it was standing in front of their face. They wouldn't know it. They wouldn't be able to tell what's going on. It is a discernment. Many of us, many of us could stand to grow in that same kind of maturity. Me first in line. It takes maturity Maturity is having your powers of discernment trained, and the skill is trained by constant practice to tell the difference, the difference between things that are good for us and the things that are bad for us. Constant practice. Maturity in the Christian life doesn't come with birthdays. It doesn't come with age. It comes with practice and it comes with cultivation. It comes with constant practice and cultivation and suffering. And it comes from training in discernment. Lastly, number four, we see in this text a explanation for us about the nature of effort in the Christian life. Paul says in verse 29, for this I toil." For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I've quoted this before, and we've talked about this before, but I don't think you can say, I don't know who said it, but I don't, I don't think you can say it enough. The grace of God is not against or opposed to or at odds with or inimical to effort. It is at odds with earning. The grace of God is expressed in your effort. That's how we get to see it. But you can't earn the favor of God. You can't put God in your debt. He didn't owe you anything when he saved you. He doesn't owe you anything now. And no matter what good deeds we do, we can't get him to owe us anything in the future. God's relationship to human beings is never transactional because we just don't have anything that he needs, right? Psalm 50 says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he was hungry, he wouldn't text us. He will never need anything from us. He'll never need anything from us. There's no quid pro quo favors that God owes you in exchange for your obedience or anything that you've done. 
And I know that there are people in this room right now, some of you have sacrificed a lot, a lot. Some of you are enduring really painful situations, disappointing circumstances in your life, and you've endured them with integrity and humility and faithfulness, and God doesn't owe us anything for that. But he delights to show up for you because he's a father that loves you. He delights to give his spirit to you because he's a father that cares for you. He delights to send his spirit. He's a good father and he delights that we don't twist his arm. He delights to be a good father to his children. But your relationship to God, my relationship to God is all grace. It's a torrent of love and grace towards you. It's all grace. It's grace all the way to the top and it's grace all the way to the bottom. Even when he rewards us, it's still grace. Even when he disciplines us, that is God's grace. It's all grace. Even when we don't understand what's going on, it's his grace, 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 and more grace. The Apostle Paul has an end in mind. He has a goal, and he is struggling to see it realized, to see that goal accomplished. And struggling here means uncompromising hard work. That means that he doesn't cut corners. It means he runs like a man who wants to win. It means he's striving for completion so much so that elsewhere he says, I worked harder than anyone. I worked harder than anyone, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God working through me. We have a hard time with that concept. We make false dichotomies where it's either got to be all of God or all of me, and we paralyze ourselves not knowing what to do next. But the Bible describes an overlapping relationship with grace and effort. It's hard for us to understand that just because God gives us all the grace we need, it doesn't mean anything's going to be easy. Prayer, for instance, if God answered all your deepest, most painful longings immediately, you wouldn't spend all that time praying to him. You wouldn't spend all that time connecting to the heart of your father. You wouldn't cultivate deep desperation for him to show up and act in your life. You won't know what prayer is unless you start praying. You won't know what prayer is for unless you start praying and praying a lot. You can read a book on prayer to find out about it, or you can go find someone who prays like crazy. And what you will find there is a person who loves God like crazy. You'll find someone whose heart is knit to the father heart of God. You won't know how powerful the grace of God is in your life unless you start toiling and start laboring and you get after it, struggling with holy and godly ambition. Do you want to see the grace of God in your life? Then find something too big for you to accomplish and run after it for the glory of God. This is why Paul uses the illustration of an athlete all the time because he sees his life as an athletic contest that he doesn't want to be last. He wants to win. It's like a prize that he's fighting for. He wants something so badly that he'll endure unimaginable suffering to get it. Unimaginable. He endured beatings and he endured shipwrecks and he endured stoning. He endured flogging. Any one of those realities would be too much to bear. The pain this man experienced was blinding, so he must have seen some kind of prize that made it worth it. And I want that for you. I want that for myself. This letter isn't written by some academic sitting in a cush, air-conditioned office pontificating about theological complexities. This guy's in jail. All he knows is he's been promised by the living God that he's going to suffer a lot for the sake of Jesus. And that's the kind of thing that revs his engine. Christ is the mystery of the ages revealed to us. His glory is worth every drop of suffering that we'll endure in this life. So let's fight 
for our own maturity and growth and for the maturity and growth of the person sitting next to us with all the effort that we can muster by the grace of God and for the glory of God. I want to make it to the end. I want you to make it to the end. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another today, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's a liar, and it is deceiving you. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm, 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 till the end. I don't know, I don't know if it's my age, or it's the age that we're all living through, but I feel like I hear of friends walking away from the faith every month right now, if not every week. And it feels like a lot, it feels like too much. And so we need to exhort one another. We need to admonish one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to be willing to warn one another. But that will take grace in two directions. It'll take grace when you hear it, to be humble enough to allow someone to try to speak into your life and do it uh, fumbling, do it in a way that maybe isn't exactly how you would prefer it. And it takes courage on your end to say the thing, to say something, to move towards a brother or a sister who is being deceived or who is stumbling. Grace for them when they warn you and don't do it like you want them to. Encourage for you to try to admonish others even though you will mess it up. We'll all mess it up. We'll all mess it up. We're like a family. That's what families do. Our minds need to be reset or redirected. We shouldn't be surprised when something in the Bible or when we hear something on a Sunday or the Holy Spirit illuminates something in our hearts in worship or in reading the scriptures that is different than what we have been thinking and is calling for correction of our lives and correction of how we're thinking about something. And the joints of our thinking need to be reset. That's what warning and admonishing means. And finally... Finally, I'll close by just naming the fact that the glory of the mystery mentioned in our text, Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the you in that sentence is plural. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of a glorious resurrection, the hope of a glorious resurrection just like his. The pain and the suffering isn't the end of the story. The friends walking away from the faith isn't the end of the story. There is a suffering that is refining and strengthening and purifying our faith. We are his body and he gave his body to us. In just a moment, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we move in the, in the service to take communion. But I also want to mention before I get to that section, another part of 1 Corinthians 11 that says, hey, before you eat, let every person examine themselves. Let every person examine their heart before you come to the table to eat in faith. The way we do communion at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have a station up in the balcony, two down here in front of the pulpit, and then one over to my left that is gluten-free and single serve. And we will also have prayer ministers underneath the stained glass, glass windows to my left who would also love to pray for anybody for anything, any time. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we shift in our service towards participating in the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is not some empty, hollow ritual that we do every single Sunday. This is an example and a liturgical demonstration of him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone, teaching everyone that, in, that everyone would be made mature in Christ. Would he grow us up? Would we hear warnings? Would we hear admonishment? Would he change us and transform us from the inside out through the power of his Holy Spirit? We come on Sundays to the Father, by, through, uh, to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we celebrate the Lord's death every single Sunday. We look in each other's eyes and we say, yeah, 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 really, really, we're not kidding. This isn't empty. This isn't a joke. Jesus died and gave you his body. And he died and shed his blood for a new covenant. And he's here. He's here. Him we proclaim. He's here. The hope of glory. I'm going I'm to pray for us as the servers come forward, and as the musicians come back up. Would you, all, would you all bow your heads with me and pray as I pray? Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to manifest your presence by cutting down the proud and by raising up the downcast? Holy Spirit, would you manifest your presence in this place by transforming our hearts, by moving us a little more towards completion, a little more towards maturity. We'll never be complete until we're glorified on the last day, but would you be pleased to move us down that path this morning? Would you strengthen our faith? Would you uh, gird up the weary, the despairing, the fearful, and would you cut down the proud and the arrogant and, and the, um, the religious, the pharisaical, and all of those things, would you do it for our good, to set us free from sin, to set us free from uh, being obsessed with ourselves, to set us free to live a life for you, to live a life that's full of faith, to live a life that can suffer with joy. Spirit, would you be pleased to manifest your presence in those ways this morning, I ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior who died for us. Amen. Amen.